Turn, if you would, to Psalm 51. I know 51 doesn't follow 90 that we did last week, but what can I say? Well, we have begun to recover around our house from the wedding. Most of the wedding stuff is put away. We did spend the week with our uh, two-year-old grandson. It's exhausting having a two-year-old in the house. I am reminded what Don told me, which is he childproofed his house, and somehow they got in anyway. <laughs> Today we're going to look at Psalm 51, but in order to understand Psalm 51, we have to jump back to 2 Samuel chapter 11. So why don't you turn there and we'll spend just a moment. 2 Samuel chapter 11 begins, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath, but David remained at Jerusalem. David has spent his entire life fighting. I mean, once he got Goliath down, which was probably when he was an early teenager, he began to fight for the king, and then he became the king, and he has been fighting, and I reckon he's probably tired of fighting. So in the spring, when it's time to do battle, he sent the army out, and he stayed in Jerusalem. Point of fact, he is not where he ought to be. He should be with his army, but he decided to stay in Jerusalem. General rule of life, if you're not doing what you ought to be doing, you will probably start doing something you ought not to be doing. And that is what we're going to see in the life of David. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Remember, there's not much air conditioning. You'd lay up on the roof in the shade, and he's walking around the top of his palace, and he looks out, and there on a neighboring house on the roof is a woman taking a bath. And it says she is beautiful. So instead of David being where he's supposed to be with the army, he's at home enjoying his pornography that happens to be on the roof next door. Let me summarize the rest of the story. You know this story. He looks at her, he lusts for her, he sends his servants to fetch her. She comes over, he sleeps with her, he sends her home. And she sends back a message, I am with child. So, what does he do? Bathsheba's husband is where he's supposed to be, which is out with the army. So, David sends word to send Uriah, the wife, the husband of Bathsheba, home for the weekend because he figures out he'll come home, he'll have sex with Bathsheba, everybody will think this child is Bathsheba's, I mean, is Uriah's, life will be okay. I will have covered my sin. Nobody will ever know. Unfortunately for David, Uriah is a very noble person. 
Instead of coming back and spending the night with his wife, he sleeps outside because he says as long as the army is in the field, I'm not going to enjoy the pleasures of my home. So he stays outside, and so David sends a message to Joab, and he says, find some place on the enemy wall where the enemy is the toughest, send Uriah there, and then back off. And let what happen, happen, happen. So he attacks the wall, the army backs up, and Uriah is killed. Bathsheba goes into mourning for a certain period of time. It doesn't really say. I always thought you did that for like a year. In this case, it was probably a good weekend. And then David brings Bathsheba into his house as his wife. Nobody knows. Nobody around the palace is doing the math. Okay, he married her on this date, and six, no, no, we're not going to do the math. You're just not going to do it. You don't do it when the king is involved. And David has gotten away with it until the prophet shows up, Nathan. He comes into David, and he tells David a story. There was a man, a poor man, who had one little lamb. And next door there was a rich man who had everything that he wanted, except he wanted that one little lamb. And he took it from the poor man. And David was indignant. He says, who did this? I'm going to find this person and I'm going to punish them. And Nathan looks him in the eye and says, you are that man. Turn to Psalm 51. The introduction tells us, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone in, gone in to Bathsheba. This is David's response. It is the finest example of repentance in the Bible my opinion. David understands that God knows what David has done. He thought he could get away with it. He thought nobody would know, but God knew. And when Nathan confronts him, he does, in fact, repent. He repents, and he writes this psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment." Have mercy on me, O God. Why should God have mercy on David? David really messed up. David committed adultery. David committed murder. Why should God forgive him? 
Is it because of something innate within David that David says, because I'm the king, you have to forgive me? Is it because I did great things, you have to forgive me? Is it because of something I have done that you have to forgive me? No. Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. There is only one thing that gives David hope that he uses to state his case, and that is the goodness and mercy of God. It isn't because he's, he, David, is worthy of it. It's because God is a merciful God. He is not presumptuous of God's mercy. He does not assume God's mercy, but he knows God is merciful. He is pleading his case, not because he's the king, and therefore it's okay for him to do anything that he wants. And let's face it, in an ancient civilization, the king could almost do anything that he wants. Nathan tells David, you could have had any woman in, there, in the country. In fact, he had multiples of them. His son is going to have hundreds of them. You could have, but you wanted the lamb of the poor man next door. God and his mercy is the only thing that David is clinging to. That's all the hope he has. It's nothing in him. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He is acknowledging the fact throughout this psalm that he has done something sinful. Now, I don't know about you, but I have this tendency to say, yeah, God, I may have made a mistake, but let me explain to you why I made that mistake. You know, if you really knew, God, how obnoxious that person was, you would have understood why I did what I did. That's what we do. That's not what David is doing in this psalm. He is acknowledging repeatedly his sinfulness. And in fact, in just a moment, he's going to acknowledge the fact that he was sinful from the day he was born. Any relationship that he is going to have with God is not going to be based on David and his works, but is going to be based on the goodness and mercy of God. That's all he has to cling to. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. What we're going to see repeatedly through this psalm is the idea that I, I, and David, David, sin. And if we are going to be cleansed, if we are going to be clean, it is going to be because of the work of God. He turns to God and he said, God, would you please clean me? Now, what is he cleaning him from? Well, he's cleaning him from the guilt of his transgression, the guilt of his sin. And what he'd really like is for God to fix him so that he doesn't 
continue to sin. Now, I might add, we did this last week, remember? We kept cheating. Remember, when we get to the New Testament, we are going to see that God is going to give us a righteousness. A righteousness that is, if you will, alien to us. It is Christ's righteousness given to us. But even in this world, with that righteousness, we still continue to war with our flesh. We still continue to war, but God has promised us that we will be made righteous with the righteousness that we have received from Christ, but when we get to heaven, we will in fact be what God has already proclaimed, decreed that we are, which is righteous. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Do not raise your hand to answer this question. How many of you know what your sins are? No, I mean, really. You know, I know what my problems are. And my problems are caused by people like you. <laughs> They're not my problems. They're the fact that I live with people like you. You know what? I mean, let's face it. I get tired and I get irritated. And, you know, my two-year-old takes off running somewhere. And I'm going, what's wrong with the world? They once asked G.K. Chesterton, what is wrong with the world? And his answer was, I am. He ended up writing a whole book, What's Wrong with the World? But his immediate answer was, I'm the problem. That's what we're seeing here. We're not seeing any blame. There's all kinds of discussions you could get into about how complicit Bathsheba was in all of this. You know, she shouldn't have gone over to David's house, even though he's the king. She shouldn't have slept with him, even though he's the king. She, but you know what? David doesn't say that. David is not sitting there going, God, that woman that you gave me. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. You'll read about that. Adam, what went wrong? You gave me this woman. What do you expect me to do? <laughs> no. That is not what David is doing. David is acknowledging, I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Now, that is weird for our modern thinking. Okay? Who wants to sit around thinking about all the things they've done wrong? Shouldn't we just think about the grace of God? Well, sure, we should think about the grace of God. This psalm is full of the grace of God. But I guarantee you, if you do not know that you've sinned, you do not know that you need grace. That's it. 
And if you think that you've sinned just a little bit, you think all you need is a little bit of grace. But when you realize the depth and magnitude of your sin, the fact that today you woke up and got angry at somebody, the fact that tomorrow you're going to get mad at that person, the next day, the next day, when you realize the depths of your sin, you begin to appreciate the depths of the grace of God. And that's what David is talking about. I know that I have sinned. I know what they are. He isn't hiding it. He isn't pretending that it's not there. He is not pretending it's somebody else's fault. Next verse. Against you, remember, he's talking to God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Wait a minute. Didn't he really mess up Uriah's life? Like, get him killed? Didn't he sin against him? Didn't he sin against Bathsheba by committing adultery with her? You know, in today's age and discussion, we would have a talk about the differential in power between David and Bathsheba, and, I mean, it's his fault. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against the entire nation of Israel. Let me give you a hint. David's life is going to be a mess from here on till the end of his life. And I would contend it is the consequences of this action here. Does that mean God isn't going to forgive him? God is going to forgive him. But our sins have consequences in this world. But that comes later in the story. When I sin, what am I doing? I'm looking God in the eye and telling him no. You see, as long as I view my sin solely as a, well, you and I had a problem and I reacted wrongly and you know what, things happen. If it's me and you as equals, you know, it's just kind of, well, sorry about that, things happen. But when I begin to understand that a righteous God gave us a righteous list of how we are to live a righteous life, and David knew this. David knew all about what God required of him. When we look at God and we look at the righteous list and we look him in the eye and say, no, that is the essence of sin. We are telling God, at this point in time, I believe, I think that I know what's best for my life, and my life, my life needs to have sex with that hot smoking babe who's taking a bath on the roof next door. And God, you don't understand. And then my life requires that I cover it up. 
And then my life requires that I cover it up so much that I kill her husband. God, you just don't understand. We begin to think that we make mistakes, that we're not sinning against a holy, righteous God. David didn't make that excuse. Against you, against you, O oh God, I have sinned. I have looked at your righteous character, and I've turned and I've walked the other way. I've said no. He isn't hiding anything from God. He isn't pretending that it has nothing to do with God. Sin has everything to do with our relationship with God. Sin is defined by the righteousness of God when we do that which is counter to that. Against you, and you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Evil in whose sight? God's. You know, right, how the book of Judges ends? A verse that's used actually a couple of times throughout, in this, throughout the scripture when God wants to talk about people running amok. And it's simply this. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. When I begin to think that I am the standard of right and wrong, I I'm in a bad place. David acknowledges, I did evil in your sight. I am not the definition of right and wrong. God is the definition of right and wrong. When God says something is evil, it is evil. But wait a minute, it's a lot of fun. I don't care. But wait a minute. 68.7% of the American population who went in this survey said that it's okay. Who cares? God gets to determine what is right and what is wrong. And when we repent, we have to acknowledge His right and authority to do that. And once again, I can't repeat this enough, and I do repeat it a lot. He doesn't give us these laws to make our life miserable. He gives us these laws because He created the universe and He knows what is necessary for human flourishing and that is to do certain things and avoid certain things. And one of the things we are to avoid is taking someone else's wife. End of story. But I loved her. No. Against you and you only have I sinned in your eyes. You said this was evil, and I did it anyway. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That's an interesting phrase. We have spent a lot of time in the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years that I'm aware of wrestling with whether our judicial system is fair, to use a very nebulous term. You know, you show up and you're rich, you get better treatment than if you're poor. If you show up and you're this color, you get better treatment than if you're this color. Is it fair? And that's probably good for us to examine that. 
Let me let you in on a secret, though. God does not suffer from any of the limitations that we as human beings have when we attempt to make a judgment. I'm not a judge, but I know that there have been situations where I've been required to make a judgment, and I just don't know. When my children were little and they'd get into a fight, and one child would want me to do one thing and another child would want me to do something else, I would tell them, I can only make a judgment based on the information that I have, which is usually limited. And it's probably not true because they're probably lying through their teeth. <laughs> but that's all I have. That's all of the, I have in order to make a decision. God doesn't have that limitation. David is saying, I am acknowledging your right to be the judge. Not only your right, but your competence. That means you are able to do it well. You may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Think about that for a moment. We sit around and try to talk our way out of what God has clearly revealed to be true. He has. He said this is true. He said, don't take your neighbor's wife. Don't do it. There is nothing in the scripture ambiguous about that. There is nothing in the scripture that would give us an exception, a, an excuse that in this particular case, because I love them or because whatever the excuse you want to make up, there is no ambiguity about what the scripture is telling us. But guess what? I can go find, because I have found them, a psychologist, a marriage counselor, that will tell me that having a little fling on the side will spice up my marriage. Hogwash. <laughs> what it'll end up with is the nation of Israel in ruins. Or at least your life in ruins. But God is right. God's Words are justified, and he is blameless in his judgment. At the end of the day, nobody's going to say, I got something from God that I didn't deserve. We do that all the time in this world, but God doesn't have that problem. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, that's a strange verse. What is he saying? He's saying, I sinned because I'm a sinner. Does that make sense to you? If it doesn't make sense to you, I'll send my two-year-old grandson over to your house for the week. There are those who would say that he is 
implying here that the sin that created him, that is, the sex from which he was produced, that that act was sinful. That's not the case here. There are those throughout church history who have argued the fact that sin, I mean, sex is basically sinful in and of itself. That is not the case. What the case is, is that when Adam and Eve sinned, we, being in Adam, sinned with him. And that we are born with a need for a Savior. It isn't that, well, I was okay until I hit puberty and it was downhill from then. It was okay until I hit college. It was okay until I met you. No. David is acknowledging the fact that he was a sinner before he met Bathsheba. He was a sinner before he became king. He was a sinner while he was still out as a shepherd. He had always been a sinner, and he was always in need of forgiveness. He was always in need of the righteousness of God. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you, God, delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. You've got to go home and memorize that verse. Purge me with hyssop. Hyssop is a plant. You would take the blood of the sacrifice, you would dip the hyssop in it, and you'd sprinkle the blood. And the blood covered the sin. We see this back at the Exodus. I mean, the real Exodus, not just the book Exodus. God says, take some of the blood of the animal and put it on the doorpost, and I will pass over that house. It is the blood that makes us righteous. It is the blood that pays the guilt-sin price for our iniquities. It is the blood that does it. And he is saying, purge me with hyssop. Now, this is the strangest picture in the world. Take the red blood, you sprinkle it, and you become clean. But you see, David is still sitting here in the Old Testament. Remember? We're cheating, right? He was well aware of the sacrificial system. He was well aware of the need to spill the blood, to cover the sins of the person, to cover the sins of the nation. He knew that. We know from the book of Hebrews which we will be starting in a couple of weeks, we know that all of that was a picture of something to come, and that something to come was the blood of Jesus Christ covering our sin. We are told by the prophet, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Why? Because the righteous blood is covering our sin. And that's what he's asking for. 
Back up again. Behold, you, God, delight in the truth in the inward being. He delights when I have truth inside of me. He delights when I have wisdom inside of me. Not that I randomly do good things occasionally when it suits my purposes. It's that I have internalized it. And I might add, this is the strange thing. They offered those sacrifices year after year after year. And guess what? Those sacrifices could not change who you are inside. But guess what? The blood of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Christ given to you, the Holy Spirit given to you can change you from the inside out. We see that in the New Testament. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. God, put my sin in such a place that you can't even see them. Now, remember, the Psalms are songs. The Psalms are poetry. We know that there is nothing God doesn't see. We know that God knows. But he's asking God, God, put my iniquity so far away that it's like it's as if you can't even see it. Do it for me. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Remember, this is a psalm of repentance. David is acknowledging his sin. He is acknowledging that once he was confronted, he acknowledges that God is righteous, God is right, and he, David, has done evil in the sight of God. And he wants... Forgiveness on the basis of God's goodness and mercy. But he wants more than that. He wants a clean heart. In the scriptures, the heart is the center of who we are. The mind, the will, the emotions. He wants all of that fixed by God. It is interesting because the scripture refers to David as a man after God's own heart. Which is interesting, since we just looked at that passage in 2 Samuel, where he gets in trouble with Bathsheba. If he were truly a man after God's own heart, wouldn't he have not done that? Wouldn't he have not sinned? Well, you'd like to think so, but the reality is, we're all sinners. We live in a fallen world, and we are fallen people. The man after God's own heart acknowledges their sin and asks God for a clean heart. And guess what? God, who began a good work in you, will complete it. I don't know about you, but sometimes don't you just get tired of sinning? I mean, really. God, why do I get angry so quickly? Why do I hold on to this bitterness for so long? Why do I commit this sin? 
God created me a clean heart. And guess what? God is going to do that. God who began a good work will finish it. Created me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. He is asking for God to change him. Now, what's our normal response? God, I messed up. God, forgive me. God, fix the consequences. End of story. Don't let me have problems because of the thing I have done. Whatever it was I did. Isn't that the way we normally think? I told you before that uh, one time I read a column or something by Dr. Laura. Is she even still on? I haven't heard about her in years. And somebody asked her, what is the most frequent question you're asked on the air? And she said, the most frequent question I, I'm asked has this pattern. I've done something wrong. How do I get out of the consequences? That's it. I've done something wrong. How do I get out of the consequences? What David is interested in is not getting out of the consequences. He wants a clean heart. And that is why David is a man after God's own heart. He wants a right spirit. He wants a clean heart. He wants to be, to use the good old theology term, he wants to be sanctified. Do you? But wait, it's so much more fun being a good sinner. Right? I get to be mad at people. I get to watch movies that you would, I mean, isn't it so much more fun? Those of you who've been in here for a long time know that I continually will comment that I have no power to judge anyone's salvation. That's God. But there are things in the scripture that I view as warning flags that something may not be as you think it is with regard to your relationship with God. If you have no interest in being sanctified, if you have no interest in being more like Christ, if you have no interest in being more righteous. It is a warning flag that something might be wrong in your relationship with God. I'm not saying you're not going to sin. But when you do sin, do you go, oh, I did it again. God, forgive me. Or do you just kind of relish it for a while? Enjoy it for a while until somebody finds out and then you go, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And off you do it again. We're the, let's raise it a little bit, the six-year-old child. Tell them you're sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> and you're going, I doubt the level of sincerity in this statement. I'm sorry. I mean, sometimes it's just one word. Sorry. 
David is acknowledging the need, the necessity to be sanctified, and he's acknowledging the fact that only God can do it. You may be like lots of people, and you began the year with lots of good New Year's resolutions. The world is convinced that I can reconfigure my life and somehow, some way, perfect myself on my own. That is a lie of the devil. You probably can work harder. You probably can exercise a little more. You probably can do a few good things, but you are not going to take care of your sin problem without the finished work of Jesus Christ in your life. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. If you are a believer, this side of the cross, this side of the day of Pentecost, if you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit and God will not take it away from you. But we know, we know that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was given to individuals for a particular period of time, for a particular purpose, and that when they defied the will of God, God could and did remove the Spirit from them. And David would have known this because David knew Saul. And at some point, Saul received the Holy Spirit when he was anointed king, and at some point, Samuel said, enough is enough, it's over. God's going to go find somebody else. David is aware that God can remove himself, him, David, from the presence of God. And you know what? He's not arguing that it would be unfair for God to do that. He's not arguing that God doesn't have the right to do this. He's not saying that he didn't do anything worthy of, of being cast out. Back to the first verse. All he's clinging to is the mercy and goodness of God. He's pleading with God, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. You as a believer today can get stuck in sin to the point where you do not experience the joy of the salvation that God has given you. Remember, we spent a lot of time on this when we got to the book of Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and etc. But before the bad list, I mean the good list, was the bad list. The bad list, these are the things that you are to avoid. And we know that if we practice the things on the bad list, we will not experience the fruit of the good list. You as a believer can be a miserable human being. You go, how can that be? You're a believer and you're living in 
someplace you're not supposed to be. You're hanging on to sin that you should ask repentance of and plead with God to clean out of your life. You are not experiencing the joy of your salvation. And I have to admit, I spend a lot of time there. But I'd never tell you that. God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. What does the joy of the salvation look like to David? Go find one of those good psalms. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Go find one of those good psalms where David is not running from his enemies, but he's sitting there remembering all the things that God has done for him. And he goes, wow, God, you're great. Wow, this is wonderful to be on your side. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then will I teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to me, to you. Then I can teach those around me. When I sin, not if I sin, when I sin, and when I repent, maybe I should put an if in front of that one, when I repent, and when I acknowledge the goodness of God, not the fact that, well, that sin wasn't that, real, that big a deal anyway, it really was wicked and awful, but I serve a gracious God who forgave me, then I can turn to my neighbor who's in need of God's grace and forgiveness, and I can tell them, let me tell you about the goodness and grace of God. That's what allows us to do this. We don't have time to get into a long discussion, but we've had this story before in the Sermon on the Mount. Why are you looking at the speck in your brother's eye when you have a two-by-four in your own eye? And the passage says, get rid of the two-by-four in your own eye so you are then in a position to help your brother with the speck in his own eye. It's not just, okay, I'll live with my two-by-four and you live with your speck. No, you are to remove that. Why? So that you are in a position to what? Teach transgressors your ways. When we have experienced the mercy and grace of God, we are in a position to help others experience the mercy and grace of God. If we think that we've really never sinned that bad, I mean, I'm better than you are, right? I'm God grazed on a curve. I'm in the top half of the curve. I'm okay. Life's good. <sighs> no. Then I am not experiencing the grace and mercy of God. Deliver me from the blood guilt Enos, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O lips, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifices, or I would give them. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Wait a minute. Aren't we supposed to? No, not us. Aren't we, as a good Hebrew in the time of David, supposed to give sacrifices? Aren't we told? I mean, why would God spend his time over there in 
Leviticus and Deuteronomy telling about all these ridiculous sacrifices if they don't do any good. Because the sacrifice only takes care of the external. It's interesting because in verse 19, he's going to say, then I can give a sacrifice. But what's in between it? For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice of God, sacrifices of God, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Sermon on the Mount, first verse of the actual sermon itself. What is it? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What is a poor-spirited person? Someone who has a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. What does it mean to be contrite? It means I'm sorrowful for my sins. I know that I cannot do it. Am I beating this into your head enough? If you walk out of this room thinking that I, if I can just find the right set of New Year's resolutions, I can perfect myself, you are living the lie that we have tried to live since the beginning of the Enlightenment. My friends, you cannot do it without God. And David knows that. What is the sacrifice that God requires a broken and contrite spirit? Yes, sir. I will. <laughs> the observation was that the sacrifice only takes care of the external. Back up a little bit, and he says, Deliver me from the blood guiltiness. When I sin, there is guilt associated with that sin. Now, I'm not a psychologist, I do not play one on TV, but we know, we know that there's false guilt, which is where I make you feel bad for doing something you probably shouldn't have done anyway. But there is true guilt when I have done something that violates the Word of God, and that guilt has to be dealt with. And when I, in the Old Testament times, went and presented my sacrifice, that sacrifice took care of that guilt. It paid the penalty for it. But it did not change me. And but, by the time we get to the prophets, God's going to say, I'm sick and tired of all these sacrifices. Why? Because I think that I can take my neighbor's wife, go home, slit a cow's throat, shed the blood, and I can keep sinning with her. No! To the, effect, to the, to the degree that the, the sacrifice was efficacious, it was effective. It was effective when it was connected with faith. And when I removed it from faith and all I had was slitting a poor animal's throat, God says, to heck with it. I'm not interested. If we were tied to faith... Uh-huh. Huh? That it was effective. It, it accomplished its purpose. It solved the guilt of sin. Because we're going to see in the book of Hebrews 
The next year I had to come back and do it again, and the next year I had to come back and do it again, and the next year, and the next year, and the next year, until the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ himself came, and then it was done. It was over. It, and that's where we're going to talk about that. And we can also have a discussion at that point about our friends in the Catholic Church presenting their sacrifice over and over again through the Mass, but that'll come much later. Did you raise your hand, Jerry? Cheap grace. Cheap grace. I can keep on sinning and doing my own thing, and God has to forgive me. So I'm a good Jew living in the time of the temple, and I believe that because I'm a good Jew and because every so often I slit some poor goat's throat, I can live any way I want to. And we as believers do that today. We as believers begin to think that God's grace, <laughs> I can do anything I want to, which was back to the discussion a while ago. If I do not have any interest in being sanctified, if I do not have any interest in a contrite and broken heart, God's going to look at me and go, who are you? I never knew you. Yes, ma'am. Nope. In fact, we can just end the story right here. The child was born. The child died. While the child was sick, David grieved for that child. And when they told him he was, the child died, they were worried David would just kick the bucket. But he didn't. He got up and he cleaned himself up. And he made some interesting comment about the fact, I'm not going to see him again, but I'm going to go to where he is. I am going to go be with that child. The idea that there is a life after death, even in the Old Testament. <sighs> David and Bathsheba had another child, and that child's name was Solomon. But we also know, as I said a while ago, the the consequences of this action, it removed the moral authority in David's life to, to deal with the sins of his sons. The sins of his sons produced a rebellion. He had to flee from Jerusalem. We, several years ago, went through the life of David. And to be quite honest, I got halfway through the series and I started beginning to go, oh, this is another bad day for David. Because as a result of this, God forgave him. God still, I believe, would say that David was a man after God's own heart. But do not think that sin does not have consequences. I've told you there's a famous author and pastor, and he typed up a list. If I cheated on my wife, here are the consequences of that. And he typed them up and he put them on his desk so that he would be continually reminded that his children would despise him, he'd mess up this relationship, that would he would mess up his ability to be, a, there are consequences, and David is going to suffer those consequences. Do not think, do not think that I can sin, say, I'm sorry, <laughs> and go back to living in sin. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. What is the point of all this? We need to live lives of repentance. We need to live lives fixed on the grace and goodness of God. If you wake up someday this week and think, you know, 
I'm going to do great things today. Just say, I'm going to do great things through the power and strength of God. Because that's all you have. And other than that, we're just born in iniquity. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you do, do listen to a broken and contrite heart. I pray, Lord, that each of us would be moved by the reality of our sin to seek your goodness and mercy and forgiveness. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.